Hello, welcome, and thanks for checking in today to No Vacancy, the podcast. I'm your host, Natalie Palmer. I'm an Airbnb ambassador and 17-time super host, and I've hosted over 1,000 reservations. I'm a stay-at-home mom of two and manage my eight listings remotely. My mission is to help new and experienced vacation rental hosts turn their listings into fully booked, profitable properties that can be managed from anywhere, so you too can have no vacancies. If that sounds good to you, let's get right into the show. And welcome back to another episode of No Vacancy, the podcast. I'm your host, Natalie Palmer. And today I am so honored to have on the one and only Bill Faith. You guys probably know him as half of the STR Wealth Conference. And he has just been such a huge inspiration to me and Tatiana and paved the way for our Level Up Your Listing Summit. Bill, I don't even know if you know this, but STR WealthCon was the first conference I ever went to. It's where I met Tatiana and we got the inspiration to do our all women's spin on it. And yeah, that just that whole conference like opened my entire world of short-term rentals. I always felt so lonely before that event and thought I was the only host in my own little bubble. So thank you so much for everything. I don't even know if you know like the impact you've had on Tatiana and I. I um, did not know that, but that's that's totally cool. And I really appreciate you sharing that with me. I mean, that's why we do these things, right? And I don't know, I, I you guys probably do know the impact that you've had on the women that have been there. And I've seen the impact just I think I've shared this with you, you know, my ladies from my mastermind that were there in their hoodies and everything, and yep. they come back and they just raved about it. And I think everybody needs a place, right, to where they feel comfortable. And I love what you and Tatiana are doing. And I'm glad that you guys uh, connected it at my event. Well, thank you. It's such a treat to have you here today. Can you introduce yourself to like the five people listening who don't know who you are? <laughs> I assume I, everybody, uh, you're just a legend in this industry. So I don't know. I don't know, know about that by any means. <laughs> I am a washed up golfer from Southern California and I'm, I'm unemployed and I'm looking <laughs> for work. I mean, that's, that's what, that's me in a nutshell. I was born in Long Beach, you know, pretty close <laughs> to where, to where you're at. I'm a serial entrepreneur. I've, done 29 startups, I guess technically 30 now. I've had 18 exits. I've built two $30 million companies, one $50 million company. I don't like big companies. I like small businesses. That's why I've, I've done so many of them. Started in the STR space technically in 2013, and that's just part Colorado. My real journey started in 2015 in Gulf Shores, Alabama. I now own $18 million worth of real estate with just under $4 million in debt. That is a huge data point. Wow. I've got $14 million in equity. We can talk about that and why that's so important because that's what I teach. That's how you build wealth. It's not just about leverage, leverage, leverage and have no equity at the end of the line. Um, I'm a co-host. I co-host luxury properties just like I invest into. I'm a teacher. I'm an educator. I own co-own the largest conference in our industry, the SDR Wealth Conference. and I pride myself, probably most importantly, on being the most accessible uh, coach in our industry because I just, I, I want everybody, there's so many people, Natalie, as you know, that are doing it wrong. They don't know how to underwrite properties correctly. They don't know how to, sort. they follow the, the trend, the herd on social media. And my mission is to make sure that people, you know, can 
alleviate making those mistakes because it's still the number one asset class, in my opinion. If you're doing this right, you're not really being affected by Airbnb bust. Mm-hmm. And I know people that are, but they're they're missing small little components that can make the difference in losing $2,000 a month and making $2,000 a month. And that's the that's my mission from an educational standpoint to make sure nobody falls into that negative cash flow perspective. Can you share how you landed or stumbled upon the short-term rental industry coming from 29 previous startups and industries? Like what, what led you down this path? Yeah. I mean, I'll go all the way back to the very beginning. You know, I grew up in, you know, the most prestigious town in California called Bakersfield, California. I'm just kidding. <laughs> I was going to laugh. They were, and so Callers referred to that as the armpit of California, but it's, it's a place I loved growing up, but I, have, I haven't been back for 20 years. That'll tell you enough about Bakersfield. But anyways, I played professional golf. So I grew up playing golf and I went to UCLA and then played professionally. And I made about just under 300 grand in my first year in 1992. I graduated from high school in 91. So you can kind of figure out how long I was at UCLA before I dropped out. And I was going to go use that money and go gamble and, you know, drink and, you know, chase women in Las Vegas and do all that type of stuff. And I used to go over there like once a month and my, my best man, he ended up being my best man in my wedding was my CPA, Jeff Stewart said, man, we need to do something with this. And he wasn't that much older than me, but he was the voice of reason. And I, and he convinced me to buy my first duplex and I bought a duplex. I lived, I basically house hacked it, you know, like people are doing, I lived in owner occupied half in one side and I rented the other side. And by renting that, it paid for the mortgage for both of them. And at the time I was traveling nine months out of the year. So it would be a waste for me to like have an apartment back in the day, spending four or 500 bucks. I owned that duplex for 19 years. I'll never forget. I paid $232,000 for it. Ended up selling it for almost 900 grand just because of the appreciation over that two two decades, essentially. And that's what kind of got me into real estate. I've always been in and out of real estate. When I got in the glow golf business, my, my partner, who was the equity behind that, I was the sweat equity. He was the second franchisee in the Pizza Hut. And, and you got to, if I take a step back, Natalie, I, I grew up with a mother that was a teacher in Bakersfield, probably never made more than 30 grand a year. My parents were divorced. I had no father figure. Uh, so I don't know how to change a tire. I can't change the ceiling fan. I just was never taught how to do that stuff. Uh, but one of the things that I, I learned is that I needed to latch on to people like my mom and, you know, seek out these mentors. And so when me and my wife were fortunate enough to meet this gentleman, Reg Booth, And he kind of funded us to go from glow range, which was this glow in the dark driving range game that started the industry that we opened in Bakersfield, California. It actually turned into top golf and they use my partner's technology today. But I had to take that because I couldn't replicate what I was successful in, in Bakersfield and Carlsbad, California, any place else around the country. So we went indoors and created this glow in the dark miniature golf course in shopping malls around the country. And that was like, that was one of the $30 million companies that we created. And since he was the second franchisee into Pizza Hut in 1968, he told me that he made the majority of his money not off the cash flow, but off the real estate. Very similar to Ray Kroc at McDonald's. Mm-hmm. He had over 180 of them at one point with him and his partner, Bill Bennett. And they started, they bought the real estate from day number one. And then Ironically, very similarly to how I build out the clusters of my portfolio around the, the country in different, you know, locales from Whitefish, Montana to Gulf Shores to wherever, is I'm putting two to three locations in one to try to 
get scales of economy and because I'm going to travel around in my life plan, my retirement plan with my wife to these different properties to where we can stay in one, but still cash flow the market, even if we're staying in our number one property down at the beach for two or three months during the winter. So he did that. And what they did is they bought minimum three locations within a 20 mile geographic trade radius. And they didn't have general managers inside their pizza huts. They had assistant managers in each of them. And then they had a district manager. And I remember we were in Bakersfield. We were getting ready to buy 18 acres to build this, you know, 17, $18 million family fund center. And I was asking him about that. And I'm like, why are we doing all this here? Why don't we just continue to grow that model? And I said, how much, and I just asked him a question. I said, how much money do you think that saved you and Bill over, you know, the last 40 years? He's all probably somewhere between 15 to $20 million. So learning those types of things that I now implement into my growth strategy with my own portfolio is absolutely critical. And that's one of the reasons that I kind of, I like to give back so much now. It's one of the reasons I wanted to build the number one conference in our industry and bring the best of the best to put them on stage to be able to educate people. And that's kind of what, what makes, makes my fiber up, to be honest with you. This is fascinating. I, I had no idea that that's like how far back your background went and everything, but everything. Yeah. I've just been looking a lot into like the McDonald's model recently and all of that, how like they really made their money through real estate, but that's so cool that you used this other experience to like pivot it into this, even down to creating experiences. It wasn't just golfing. It was glow golfing and everything. I love how you've like redirected all of that. Like you can really see the whole path, even when you didn't know that you'd end up here today. I feel like you can like go back and see that whole path forming. That's really, really cool. It's just, it's just learning, right? So I'm, I've always believed my whole family's been was in education and they pretty much, I don't want to say they disowned me, but they cut me off financially. I, I went, I got a full ride to UCLA. I was the third ranked golfer in the world coming out of high school. And I got a full ride and I dropped out after four months, one semester. I won like three out of six tournaments. I thought I knew everything at, you know, 18. And I said, I'm just going to go play professional golf. Well, they said, okay, you're on your own. You got to figure this shit out. And I think what's really important is that you continue to self-educate. So I had a guy that lived in West LA uh, named Jay Jacoby. He owned American Pacific t-shirts. I mean, I made a hundred grand in less than nine months, my junior year in high school, selling t-shirts because my mom taught me how to sell, right? And Jay Jacoby taught me how to sell. And she, and she taught me the importance of financing. We sat at our, at our dining room table and I had like 50 shirts from Jay Jacoby and she's like, okay, we owe Jay $5. Write that down in column number one. Two, you got to pay Kevin and Mike who are helping you, who are helping me sell at two other high schools, right? You're paying them like $7 an hour and they're working three hours. So $21 each night that they're selling. And then we got it, the gas to drive down to West LA from Bakersfield was like 40 bucks. And all these, she's taught me how to create a PL and how to run a business. And those things that I learned along the way, Rich, is really what I, when we all met, I don't know if you and I met there, but, you know, the, the regular suspects, Julie George, Mike Shogren, Noble Crawford, TJ Tajani, Sean Raskovich, we all met on Clubhouse back in the day in like December, January 2020, right? And what I found is that I was really the only person, I was the black sheep at the time, because everybody's talking about arbitrage and co-hosting, that's what they were all doing. I was the only one that had a plan to build to get to a million dollars in net income, I want to make this abundantly clear, net income, not gross revenue, not rental income with the least amount of properties possible. And I missed it. 
in 2022 by 3000 bucks. It really pisses me off. I <laughs> promise you, I will not miss it in 2023. Well, I know for a fact that I won't cause I'm almost there already, but I did $997,000 in revenue with 12 properties. And people are like, how the fuck do you do that? I need a hundred doors. You don't, you just need the right ones. And I learned that from all these mentors along the way, starting with my mother, because the first time I sold t-shirts out of the back of her 1984 Ford Tempo, because Jay was going to charge me five, I charged 10 bucks. And my mom never made more than 30 grand. She probably never had any, and I didn't starve by any means. We weren't poor. This was early eighties, remember, but she probably never did anything of luxury in her life. She probably never ate a hundred dollar or $150 tomahawk steak. She never had a hundred dollar bottle of wine. She was drinking Franzi out of a box. I remember boxes of wine, you know, in our uh, refrigerator, but she said, you know, honey, you probably need to at least double your price because nobody can get these t-shirts. They weren't sold in stores. They weren't done. He's, she's all create this exclusivity. And I've done, and I've learned about that. And I've done that in every single business that I've done along the way. I am always the highest price point. I am always the super whatever that, you know, when I was importing and drop shipping Brazilian bikinis and sarongs and swimwear and everything in 1993, 94, 95, there's a reason that Venus Swimwear acquired that company because I was doing things that nobody else did. These things were handmade and you'll appreciate this, Natalie. As a female, we had two shipments get screwed up and I was selling them in AOL chat rooms and on Netscape <laughs> and stuff like that. And it cost me almost 200 grand to build a, an e-commerce website back then. But we, we, the website got messed up and the sizes mixed and matched and the colors mixed and matched. And I can't take credit for you being able to buy whatever size you are on the bottom in polka dots and whatever size you are on the top in a solid. But that's why Venus Swimwear acquired our company because of a mistake wow. that happened that way. And, and if, if you were older, like my wife's age, or you would know that back in the, the early 90s, you had to be medium and medium and the same yep. color. And that's <laughs> the way that it rolled really until there was mass adoption by all you know the other vendors that were out there. But I'm going to go back once again, Jeff Stewart, when we were going through that acquisition, I had the ability to take $2.8 million cash or to take 7% on a royalty in perpetuity. And what do you think my answer would have been? Well, let's go roll some dice in Vegas, Natalie. We're taking the cash and we're going to Vegas. You took the cash? That's no, what I wanted to do. I wanted to go play some craps and roll some bones in Vegas. <laughs> and I took the I took the the perpetuity. I took the the royalty. And I what? still get it today what made you make that decision that your your mentor at the time because you're saying your mentality was like i would i would take the cash and go gamble it i was fucking 21 22 years old <laughs> nobody thinks about long term right it's that short-term thing yeah i i wouldn't have gambled it away i was pretty fucking responsible to be honest with you but i would have went and spent 50 grand and but got a suite and you know done whatever and wasted money that's what we all do when we're young and it's kind of what you wanted to talk about, you know, before we started this, I didn't have a plan for my life. I mean, I was playing golf. I started businesses. I wasn't married at the time. I didn't have a desired outcome that I was trying to achieve. I was just trying to make money and have fun at that time, which I think a lot of us that are lost do. And that continued mm -hmm. for the next 15, almost 15 to 17 years of my life until if you remember last year at the, the wealth conference, 
I got to introduce John Baird. And I don't know if you, if you saw that when I had him sitting in the front row before I did one of my presentations and I started crying in front of a thousand people. And that's because of the profound impact. He's the one that taught me the life plan. And it, I, I'm 50 today. I didn't have the life plan when I was 35. Wait, like today? No, no. I mean, I'm oh. today. No, I, I turned <laughs> like, 50 in May. I'm 50. I'm like halfway <laughs> through 50. I'm almost closer to 51 now, but I'm old. I didn't think about that stuff in my 20s with, you know, restaurants that I create at my wife. Like the first venture me and my wife did, we created Wild Bill's Texas Smokehouse in Taft, California, a small oil town, probably population about 8,000 on the weekends and at night. But all it's all the West Coast oil would come into there. And that's where they would, you know, extract all the oil rigs and they'd send it to L.A. to the refineries. We'd have 45,000 people there by day. So we took one restaurant into six in 18 months and then sold that to a place called Tahoe Joe's, which was a, you know, an up and coming steakhouse. And, but we did, if we didn't have guidance, there's no chance that we would have known how to scale and do that stuff. How did your mom give you this entrepreneurial advice? You said you come from a family of educators and she probably never made more than 30,000. How, how did she know like to charge more for shirts or help you figure out how to do a PL and all of that? When I was a freshman in high school, she bought a preschool for the, and she had say, she used her life savings to buy a preschool. I don't know what she paid for it. It was very small. You know, it was, it was like basically a residential area that they yeah. got it rezoned. And there was the, the plate plate, like an, a larger ADU in the back. And she might have 30 <laughs> or 40 kids, you know, maybe 50 or 60. I don't know. But that's where, when she kind of set me down at that dining room table, it was old school, you know, no QuickBooks back then, no stuff. So she's writing down in a ledger, you know, and kind of figuring out all of her expenses. And we didn't even know that it, what a PL was back then. And, and she had the guidance of the CPA to help her because she'd never been in business before. And I, I, I distinctly, I mean, I was the sweat equity. I was the labor on the weekends. If I wasn't doing sports, I was there trimming bushes, you know, washing chairs, cleaning up poop from the kids that went, you know, that those teachers didn't clean it up, whatever it is. But I learned the experience you know, kind of secondhand of what she was doing as an entrepreneur. And the only thing I can tell you, Natalie, that I remember is things got a little bit better for us. Once, once again, I'm not singing this sob story. I didn't grow up poor. We were okay. I never missed a meal. She had a car. I had a roof over my head. I had clothes. I had a pair of Air Jordans in high school, but you know what? Things got a little bit better. She could, she could afford to send me to my first golf tournament outside of Los Angeles, which was in Ashland, Kentucky. The problem was, is I won the, that national championship. So then that means I needed to go to more and more and more. She invested every single penny into me, but she was diligent to let me know and educate me on how much it cost, you know, the commitment for what happens when she had to leave work to fly to a tournament with me. Cause we typically have to leave and fly out on like a Friday for a Saturday, Sunday tournament, and then take like the red eye home into LAX and then drive all the way back to Bakersfield on Sunday night. She just wanted me to know. And probably the most important thing that I take away outside of the entrepreneurial side, and you have, you know, kids is I've taught my two daughters who are freshmen and senior in high school to be financially literate mm -hmm. and about how investments work and how compound interest works and that type of stuff. Kind of the same things. My mom didn't know all that type of stuff, but I'm taking that to the next level because even though one wants to be an interior designer and the other one you know, wants to become a doctor, typically doctors and professionals are the ones that are the most illiterate, you know, when it comes to finances. I'm sure you get a bunch of 
local physicians that need your help and they've made bad deals and they don't understand financing and all that type of stuff as I do. And so I want to make sure that they're set up for that. And that kind of stems from my mom, but really just seeing her go through that kind of preschool experience is what helped me with that. The other advantage that I had, Natalie, was being good at golf. I got good really, really quickly. So even when I'm 14, 15, 16 years old, it's kind of like being the the big man on campus or the prom queen. Everybody wanted to play golf with me, right? Even at that age, because I was super good. So I got experience in just through osmosis, listening to the conversations of these older guys that I'm playing golf with. And because I was good, I got access to country clubs that we couldn't afford. So I'm around the wealthy and most of them are entrepreneurs or they're high income earning W2s. So I just hear, heard the things. And then I would ask questions because I'm in, a, in, in kind of an inquisitive guy and I still am. And they would share stuff with me. So kind of just picking it up really secondhand. Do you remember episode 68 where I got to interview Kenny Bedwell, the CEO at S-Tier Insights? Well, since his episode dropped, I have heard multiple success stories from no vacancy listeners who have been able to find their next property thanks to Kenny and his team at S-Tier Insights. If you've been wondering if the property or market you are looking at will be a good investment, or if you have no idea what market or property to start looking at, please take advantage of the free call that S-Tier Insights is offering no vacancy listeners. You have nothing to lose. With their 100% success rate, I am confident that you'll be in good hands working with S-Tier Insights. Whether you're looking for cash flow, cash on cash return, or long-term appreciation, S-Tier Insights will first help you define your goals and then identify the market and property that is right for you. The team is made up of S-Tier investors and operators themselves, so they know exactly what to look for in terms of a good market and property, and will make sure that you can legally operate in the areas they point you to. If you're ready to join the dozens of No Vacancy listeners who have already started working with S-Tier Insights to find their next property, just click the link in my show notes to schedule your free call and get you one step closer to finding that perfect deal. How did you teach your daughters all of the stuff to be financially literate? I'm, you know, my kids are young, two and a half and one and a half, and I want them to grow up with that knowledge too, the stuff we don't learn in school. Like, did you send them books and stuff or was it you literally sitting at the table with them? Like, it, let's, let's go through this. Yeah. I mean, no books at all. They haven't read Rich Dad, Poor Dad or any of that <laughs> type of stuff. I mean, it's a common, it, it's, I'm more Dave Ramsey than, than Robert Kiyosaki, just FYI. I was probably way more Robert Kiyosaki when I was your age than I am now. And I think that's a big thing when people are asking for advice. So like I, and it's, it's kind of challenging when I speak to women on a, like a, a, that I've never met before on a coaching call. How old are you? Well, I mean, I, I gotta know because <laughs> it's different if you're 23 versus 61 and the advice that I'm going to give to you. Right. So for my girls, it started with a green light debit card. And you know, that's when they were 12, they got green light debit cards and then they would earn commission. They had to work around the house, earn commission. So a lot of people, people oh, excuse me, a lot of people probably think I live in a mansion and I've got housekeepers and all that type of shit that we've never had somebody clean our house. We've, I mean, up until even probably COVID, I never had anybody mow my yard. I did all that stuff. We are the, the blue collar, white collar people, right? So they had to earn their keep, if you will. And it was based on how Dave Ramsey teaches, you know, your kids to earn commission. So then the second component of that is if they make $100, what do they do with that money? And that's really where it starts. 10%, you're, you're tithing to church. Like literally they're putting it in 
every Sunday, just like my wife and, and I are. Then you need to save 25%. Right off the top, you know, they're, it wasn't until later till we started teaching them. I haven't even taught my youngest daughter, who's 14 yet and a freshman, about taxes yet. My oldest daughter's learning uh, right now about taxes, credit score, all that type of stuff. As a matter of fact, she got accepted to Belmont University yesterday, That's which fair. is a really nice Christian university here in Nashville. And when she got accepted, I gave her her Amex Platinum yesterday. And she's like, what? She handed it back to me. She had to literally got accepted at 11 a.m., got out of school. She accepted so she could get enrolled, everything immediately. And I gave her my her own. So she has her own Platinum. And a lot of people out there are listening, well, what does a 17-year-old need with an Amex Platinum? Because I have one and I pay it off every two days. My wife has one and even my 14-year-old has one. They've never touched it. They don't know that they have it. <laughs> but I pay it off so when my oldest daughter in November turns 18, she will have a perfect 850 credit score. And she has an Amex Platinum in, in her name. And she has a $100,000 credit limit on that. So I'm setting her up and she's learning about it now. She's learning about how that works. She's what She understands how credit cards work because she's had a green light card for five years. She now has a brand new Ford Bronco Sport, the cheap one, you know, the $30,000 one that I got her two weeks ago. And she earned that. It wasn't just given grades, athletics, you know, missions, service, all of those things led for her to earn that. And then I financed that at, at 60 months. I put $10,000 down cash. She went with me when I did the deal. And I explained to her why I financed it over 60 months. I also explained to her that if I was buying this for me, I would have paid cash because the interest rates are so high right now. Right. But luckily we got 3.9% on a special from them versus paying roughly 8%. And I explained that difference to her. But most importantly is that 60 month, that five-year term. I said, honey, this car is going to be 100% paid off when you graduate from, from school. You got your senior year and then four years at Belmont. And then we talked about why it's important for her to hit credits to graduate in four years because she wants to go to medical school. I, why I bought her a reliable Ford and I showed her the residual value. This will probably be worth somewhere depending on your mileage. And because you're going to be here and not driving it everywhere, you might put in 10, 15,000 a year so we ran it through Kelly Blue Book. It's probably be worth around 10 grand, right? So I'm buying you a $40,000 vehicle after tax, after registration, everything else. It's going to depreciate. I explained that to her. And the reason I did the 60 months is so it's paid off when you get ready to go to medical school. You will have to make the determination what you do with the vehicle at that point. You own it. At that point, you'll start paying for insurance, fuel, all that stuff. So kind of just walking them through those real life experiences. You know, most people, Natalie, are afraid to talk about money. They're afraid to talk about sex. They're afraid to talk about politics, whatever. My wife and I are an open book with our daughters, and we have them probably since they're about 11 to 12 years old. Now, we're not sitting down and talking about sex with our daughters, but <laughs> money I was wondering, how, how open are we with that? <laughs> but money and finance is absolutely critical. So I offered my oldest daughter $250,000 cash and $100,000 a year job to skip college and come work for me. And then we would start a business with that $250,000 or multiple businesses to set her up for success. But she's, she wants to become a surgeon and I support her a thousand percent, but I wanted to give her that opportunity, right? And those are the things because of real estate, because of the decisions that I've made, because of how my mom impacted me that have allowed me to be able to be in that financial position. I wouldn't have done it if I hadn't 
create if I hadn't achieved the financial freedom that I defined in 2015 with John Bearden, right? And so that was 800,000, it started at $500,000 a year in income, then it went to 800,000, then it went to a million. I make multiple seven figures today. So I've since I've surpassed that financially, we're I'm fine making less money. And I think one of the things that people have problems with is we all want more, more, more. But once you hit a certain space, when do you stop? What's enough is enough. So we've hit enough is enough for us. So now it's that life plan to like get to retirement for us is really our, our youngest daughter graduating from high school and, and going to college. So I'm actually trying to pare back and make less money today than make more money so I can have more time with my kids and with my spouse. So you're early, right? I mm -hmm. mean, like yesterday, my wife and I went to pick up, we went 45 minutes early and our youngest daughter got mad at us when she got in the car. Cause we're the only parents sitting there watching her soccer practice. You know, we're in the car, we're away, we're not on the field or anything, but it's embarrassing for her. And we're like, honey, you're a freshman. I mean, I've only got four years left to watch this. And you're not going to want to have anything to do with your parents once you go to college and all that type of stuff. And I said, well, and so a lot of that's part of that life planning and the understanding of, you know, you think about how old your parents are, Natalie. And mm -hmm. I look at, you know, I didn't expect my mother to pass away as young as she did, you know, and I look at, I'm 50. And we talk about how many more times does my wife have the ability to spend Christmas with her parents, you know, who are in okay health. Father's not as great. But he's like 75 now. Her mother's like 70. I said, you got max 10 to 15 years. Yeah. That's like 10 more times. That's it. So we think about those things with our with our girls as well. And we're those weird parents that are the only ones that watch our teenagers, you know, practice whatever they do because we want to see that. And is that something that you've been able to start doing now? Or were you always like, as you were building your businesses, when your girls were younger, were you trying to be involved or like, I'm just kind of curious, how's, how's Hell your life to the no. transitioned? Hell to the no, not even close. I wanted to be there, but that's the whole thing about like the life plan that I talk about, right? Is I've been married for 25 years. I've never slept on the couch. I've never had to go to a motel. My wife and I have had plenty of disagreements, plenty of fights, but we've always worked them out and gone to bed happy, at least not pissed off, right? And we've had a tremendous marriage. I couldn't imagine having a better marriage, having a better wife, lover, spouse, best friend, business partner, whatever we want to classify her as. But we weren't aligned. And when John, when we, I was in EO, the entrepreneurs organization, had a shitty experience. I got recruited into a forum nine guys, three of us were overachievers and the other six were underachievers. And I, I lasted for five months, Natalie. And finally, after spending eight hours with them a month and those guys not being prepared, showing up late, not having financials, creating no value, just walked in and said, fuck you guys, I'm leaving. I'm not going to continue to waste my fucking time. And I said, John, Alan, if you want to come with me, I'm going to go create my own fucking mastermind and of high achievers and not just be in this mediocrity. And a lot of people would say that's egotistical, Bill, you're a, a jerk, whatever. I only want to fucking surround myself with people that are better than me and people that are looking to be at the top half of 1%. I'm not a 10%er. I'm not a 20%er. I'm at the fucking top. And I'm at the top because I surround myself with those people. They drive me. So we went and started our own deal. We knew there was one fundamental flaw in our forum. And I think a fundamental flaw within EO 
is that our groups were self-moderated. So we went and we found this guy, John Bairden, and we thought he was going to come in the very first meeting. We'd have prep calls with him and all that type of stuff. We told him what we wanted to do. Two-time Fortune 500 CEO, angel investor, 71, 72, probably 70 years old at that time. He walks in, he puts his binders down. We had recruited like five people to come and join us, split the cost because it was like 100 grand a year. And he started with the life plan. He's like, you guys want to be just like me, don't you? Yeah, I want to, I'll be a CEO of a Fortune 500 company. I want to be an angel investor. I want to be worth $200 million. And he's like, no, you don't. I'm on my fourth wife. My son, who just became a president of the bank, hasn't spoken to me in three or four years. He went through the whole gamut, whatever it was. And it was because we were all chasing money. We were all chasing, for me, new businesses, new startups. And I went back after that meeting and told, and she's like, how was the meeting with John? I said, I don't know. I said, well, how do you think it went? And I explained to her what, what went through it and asked her what you wanted. She's all, well, I think at the time, my oldest daughter, who's now 17, was five or six. She's all, I just want you to be here with them. At that time, and I was nowhere near where I'm at financially today, we don't need more money. We were in this house. I've got a 7,000 square foot house. We were, we were fine. We weren't aligned. We thought we were. We had a great, fantastic relationship, but she wanted me home. I wanted to be home, but I felt like as the alpha male, I had to continue to provide and provide and get more and more and more. I had to pay for college. You know, you think about what's college going to cost you for your kids. I'm paying 55 grand a year for Gentry. That's not, that doesn't include med school. You know, she's still going to end up a quarter of a million, $400,000 in debt when she gets out of med school. Those things keep me up at night and I'm mm -hmm. traditionally supposed to be that earner to take care of it. So I thought I was doing the right thing by not taking a vacation with my family for five and a half years. It took my wife literally saying, you don't want to turn into your father who left me and my mother when we were, when we, when I was five and then poof, I just went through that with John. We had that conversation. It's time to re-architect my life. I had a $10 million, $11 million marketing agency at that time. That's where we used to meet in my office in downtown Nashville. And I remember calling, calling John that next morning and said, I'm all in on the life plan. I need you to help me restructure my life. He's all, we're not going to restructure it. We're going to architect it. There's a difference. And I met with him outside of our meetings, probably at least every two weeks for, I don't even know how long. And he did that for probably four or five of the people that really wanted it in that group. There was a guy named Mark in that group who had a, a struggling one and a half to $2 million pharmaceutical company that now John became the temporary COO and he's doing like 40 million a year in sales because he re-architected the life. And if we don't have our shit right at home and we're not aligned with our spouses, how the fuck are we going to perform in business? I probably would have only needed to do 10 or 15 startups versus the 29 if I would have been aligned at your age, Natalie. And I look back at that and there's, I think there's these defining moments. There's these opportunities that every one of us as human beings get. The question is, is do we grasp onto them? I think we get three, four of them. They're limited. And I'm glad I grasped onto that one with John because it's 
just fundamentally changed everything. And I think it's changed it for, I know it's changed it for me and my wife. And I think it's changed it for my kids too. It's changed it for my in-laws, for my wife's parents, because they are indirectly affected by how he's benefited us. So this whole, not restructuring, but new architecting your life, this happened when your youngest was five or six years old. Mm-hmm. What, what was the change? Like what exactly happened at that point how many startups and were you and were you like i'm just done i'm not starting any new businesses i'm going to dive into this or like what what was that change i I was about 20 in i've still done like nine (laughs) startups but they're vertical integrations they're like not whole new business models right so number one was my inbound marketing agents agency and it's called inbound marketing it's like i was like one of the first with hubspot and then helped build out their partner program but what happens is is it's very low margin because it's very labor you know, intensive, very similar to the, the restaurant industry. So I, I switched that and I became a coach. I, I built Limo University, just like I built short-term rental wealth. And I, I coached and created, you know, products and masterminds and all that type of stuff to help them because I built the fastest company to ever hit $10 million. I mean, I had the history. I've done it just like in this space. I can teach because I've done it. And I restructured into the information and training world because it's easier to scale. It's more profitable you know, as opposed to having 28 people, you know, working for a $3 million business, you know, it just, it's, it's tough. The margins are small and it takes more time and you got all these clients that are calling you. So that was really the first big step, but it was also to really focus on vertical integrations as opposed to trying to start whole new industries. Right. So like with the glow golf thing, I mean, the industry didn't exist. Me and my partner had to carve that out and that took a tremendous amount of time and labor. I was in the ground transportation space. I built a $9 million limo company, bus company in under four years in Nashville. That's the most time consuming business. I went from one to six restaurants in 18 months. Everybody knows how tough restaurants are and the labor and all that type of stuff. So I had this obsession, if you will, with these heavy lifting businesses, never doing it again. I've, I've owned trademarks and stuff on big ass burgers and big ass burritos ever since I bought big ass fans when I built this huge 54,000 square foot limousine and bus facility. And I I told my wife, I said, we're doing big ass burritos. And then I joke and say, okay, well, we'll call it burrito bobs or something like that. She's like, we're never getting back into the restaurant industry because it's miserable. So I only do what makes me happy and that's helping people. And I've been, and I've figured out how to become one of the best at monetizing that. And then honestly, in the limo space and when COVID hit, I just gave everything away for free because the industry went to zero within three weeks. And then that's when I pivoted into the short-term rental space at the urging of Chris, you know, my COO now. And he's like, dude, and I didn't do it because I had a conflict. I built another guy's brand who was the early person into this industry. And I just didn't want to go into the space. And he's like, we need to do this. You are better at this than anything else. And nobody's, nobody was applying business concepts, right? It was just, real estate people talking about co-hosting arbitrage. And then some people were investing. So I looked at, I brought the the business concepts into this space to run it like a real business. And I think that was the fundamental separator for me. And then everything I've done since then, Natalie, is just a vertical integration inside of this business. There will be no more, you know, new vertical, new marketplace startups for me. If I do that, I will be the silent partner. I will not be the executor in that. Can I ask a little bit for you to expand on what you said about getting aligned with your wife? Because I 
I can see, obviously, yes, you need to be aligned with your spouse, full agreement there. But at what point are you like, no, trust me on this? Like, this is going to be a good move. And at what point are you like, you're right, I should slow down? Like, how are you <laughs> finding that middle ground? Well, I think the majority of the times it's the other way around with me and my wife. My wife trusts everything that I do. And, you know, she she trusts when I go to Vegas, you know, three times a year that I'm I'm faithful and I'm not out at strip clubs and partying and all that type of stuff. And she trusts my judgment because of my history, you know, of what I've done. I mean, I've had plenty of failures, you know, I've, I've had 10 failures essentially, and you have to have those and you have to absorb them, but it's, it's about becoming, it's about negotiation. It's about, it's really, it's about give and take. It's about unification is what, if my wife tells me, no, I've learned over 25 years of marriage that my wife has never been wrong when she's told me not to do something. And I've went ahead and every one of them is there's like three or four times, three times really that it's been a mistake. And one of them was a Ponzi scheme with a guy named Michael Park who stole $28 million. And I played golf with the guy three days a week when I was semi-retired and he never solicited me one time. My wife didn't like him. My wife said, don't give him money. I did. I ended up losing a significant amount of money. And then, you know, he got convicted, went to prison, then committed suicide when he got out because his life was wrong, but he, he fucked up probably 40 people's lives, maybe 50 people's lives to the tune of almost 30 million bucks. My wife had that, you know, women's intuition, that gut feeling. Mm -hmm. And, you know, I was masked by friendship and playing golf and, you know, drinking and all that type of stuff. She's been right every time. So if my wife, if I want to really do something and she says, no, I'll trust her every single time. There's too many opportunities to do something that you are not aligned with your spouse. Period. It's that simple, in my mm. opinion. We 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 can we can pass and we can do something different, or we can pivot, or we could iterate. Now, there's a lot of spouses, a lot of marriages to where not we see a lot of people in this industry, you know, and a lot of wives that are doing this, meaning they're the investor and the husbands are doing something else, and vice versa. You know, you still need to have some type of support. They don't have to be active. So that's the thing that I've learned is, man, when, when I have my wife's support 100%, not 70, not 60, when we're 100% aligned, things are just way better, you know? And, and, we, and we live, I mean, we, we live together every single thing. It, it, it pains me. I mean, I love Avery, right? So we're going to see Avery here in a few days. Avery has a 48-hour rule. You know, she's never away from, from her kids for longer than 48 hours. I love that you know, and that's commitment to Luke, her husband, it's commitment to her kids. And, you know, I, I try to implement that. I, I can't, I have to break that. But I mean, <laughs> for us, it's, it's huge. I mean, I'll give you an example about just the crazy parents that we are tomorrow. I'm not going to say the person's name, but I had to cancel today a podcast. I'm probably the biggest person I could ever dream of being on their podcast tomorrow because it was scheduled right at the start of my youngest daughter's high school soccer game. I may not get to reschedule. And if I do, it's probably six to nine months down the road. And I'm not talking like Brandon Turner big. I'm talking like a hundred times bigger than that, because that's the commitment that me and her have to our kids. And it's unified 10 years ago before life plan, because I know how beneficial that podcast is going to be to my brand, to my business, just in the alignment with that person. I would have done the podcast every single time. That's the difference in the decision-making when her and I have unified on really what are the most important things in our life, business and personally.
how how did you make that decision? Like I'm I'm with you, you know, like I want to spend time with my kids too, but like opportunities like that, it would be so I mean, God, maybe I'm gonna expose myself as a selfish mom right now, but like there are just times like that where it's like, okay, it's just one, it's just one podcast, it's just one soccer practice I have to miss. Like, how did you so confidently because I've done the one thing so many times and I didn't think I thought exactly what you just said. And I took my wife, it took John, it took the life plan. It took identifying these things to see how it affected her and how, and she heard me complain about my father not being there and you know how much I not only not regret, but I hate to use the word, but hatred that I had for him for, you know, not being there. And the, the dick showed up literally in Orange County when I was a senior in high school, when I was playing in the state championships with Tiger Woods because of Tiger Woods, not because of me. And I had to tell him, I don't ever want to see you again. You haven't been there for me the last 12 years. Why the fuck should I let you be here now? And he left and I haven't, I never spoke to him after that. I don't want that to happen with my kids period. So I will, it's, it's a big deal to, for me to sacrifice that. And I sent a very long email to the person that I had to cancel on. And I told him exactly why. And you know what that person replied and said? You're a better man than me. And he sent me the link to reschedule. That's pretty fucking cool. This is a hardcore business person. And, but he, he or she respected that, right? And I wouldn't have done it. So I, but I think it's when you, one more time, one more time, one more time. It's like being in Vegas. I was a big blackjack guy. Oh, just one more hand, one more hand. My luck's going to turn around in one more hand. And you keep peeling off hundred dollar <laughs> bills. And, words. Yeah, a hundred percent. I mean, that's the deal, right? So we have to have, if you don't plan out your future, you're not going to make educated decisions on a daily basis. It's really that simple. Once I knew what that desired outcome was, once I defined retirement, once I knew what I needed financially, once I knew, you know, what me and my wife wanted from a personal standpoint for our daughters, for her parents, for all that type of stuff, it makes those distilling down to those daily decisions a thousand times easier. Now, also understand, my girls are 14 and 17. I'm in a financial position, probably in age and financially that's completely different than where you're at being much younger than me, right? So at ages one and, and two and a half, it's completely different response as opposed to they're aware where I'm at and where I'm not. And they're aware if we're present, you know, it's just like people that sit on the couch. Hey, Natalie, yeah, your podcast is a great question, but Hey, Oh, look, Hey, Uggs are still on sale. I'm going to get Uggs. I'm not present, right? That's the biggest one for us. And I'll tell you, we have our daughters audit us every week. My wife and I meet every Friday from noon, noon to four. It doesn't usually take that long, but we audit our progress to our goals and how we did financially, how we did together as a couple, how we did in every, every aspect of our life. And then we come home and our girls know, how did mom and dad do this week? Rate us from one to 10. Were we helpful? Did we teach you well? Did we love you? Were we present? All those things. Most parents are afraid to ask those questions. And I was too. But that's what holds us accountable. And I think accountability is everything. You use the word of being alone earlier. And most of us as entrepreneurs are alone. And like, if your husband works and he's in a job or not at, at the house and you're at home with the girls all day, you know, it's great. Or, or girls, your kids, I don't know if they're a boy or girl or whatever. Both girls. But it's, both Just girls. Like you. 
Yeah, I, I love it. But, you know, I'm sure you feel alone a lot, mm-hmm. you know, when, when without that interaction with other people and just all those things that that play into it. So it's easy for me to make that decision today. But when I was your age and I assume you're like 30, I, I didn't be 30 make- next week. So. Awesome. <laughs> What, what, what day next week? Are we celebrating in San Diego? The 29th on Friday. So a little nice. after the conference, but yeah. All right. Well, we'll do a little celebration on <laughs> Sunday or Monday then. I didn't do it when I was your age. And, you know, I, I don't know that even if I had John or the life plan or whatever it was, I can't tell you that I would. I just think a lot of it has to do with age and maturity and, you know, the age of your children. And there's a lot of, you know, just different factors, but I can tell you the faster that you can get a plan into place for your life and you can commit to that and you understand what that outcome is. Cause I wanted to retire at 60 with $500,000 a year in income, just to give you two metrics. And I hit my financials in 2021. Basically I was done financially in 2021, as long as I don't make any stupid mistakes between now and, and then. And it just becomes those life events that I'm waiting for. But I'm also planning to take care of either my father-in-law or my mother-in-law because I had to take care of my mom and I didn't realize it was going to cost me $8,000 a month. And my mom told me she was broke. Well, she left me over a million dollars when she, when she passed away and she thought she thought she was broke. So I had to spend the $300,000 at eight grand a month for three years in the facility. And it's, if my youngest daughter doesn't go to college if my wife's father passes away and we have to take care of her mother, those are things that we are planning for that if we would have never learned how to put a life plan together, we wouldn't have. And we're not talking just personally or just financially. We had a discussion, Natalie, probably a month ago. We went to, I bought a place in Montana. My youngest daughter hates Montana. She didn't go on vacation with us for two weeks. She just made the high school golf or not golf team, high school soccer team. So she had to stay here for practice. She elected to stay here. She could have missed. And we got back and we asked them, what are your favorite places that we go to? What are your favorite homes? Do any of them, you know, which one would you want to stay at? And they all, both of them said, none of them. They're not our house. They never want to leave here. You know, I'm in my basement mm-hmm. office. They never want to leave here. And we're like, so you don't like Gentry. You just fell in love with snowboarding. You don't love Montana on the river and all that stuff. It just doesn't feel like home. And we were planning on going there for Christmas and taking the in-laws and that type of stuff. What about the beach? Oakley, you're a beach girl. What about our lake house? That's used to be mine and my wife's there. What about the mountains in North Carolina? Scottsdale during, it's warm during the, you know, the winter. It's not home. So a light went off. They don't give a shit about mom and dad's houses. Mm -hmm. They don't want to go there. That's not theirs. This is their house. So now it's like, okay, what do we do with the backyard out there? Pool, fireplace. We got to make it the oasis to where they feel that same way. And they want to come back to where they grew up when they're in college, when they get out of college, when they have their families. My wife, part of our plan was to sell this place when Oakley goes to college, downsize. I mean, we don't need 7,000 square feet and six bedrooms. We don't even need that now, but now we've got to keep it. And that's changed in our plan. We're going to invest into the backyard. So that way the grandkids want to come here, you know, and all those types of things that the life event, it's not just about finances. It's about the feelings. It's about 
you know, what, what are your kids going to want to do when they go to college? And how are we going to attract them to want to come back and spend time with mom and dad? You know, the things that we don't think about when they're one and two and a half, they're always going to love you. They're never leaving. I've got 15 years, but now we're so close. That one little conversation that we had changed everything for us. Now this will be our home base. It wasn't in the plan to be that way. That was mine and my wife's part of the plan. It is a plan for your spouse and for yourself, but it also needs to include your children. I think our final question, we've been recording about 50 minutes and I know we're already over the hour because me and you chatted a little bit before we hit record, but final thing I think I want to ask you, and I could honestly do a part two with you. Like I got 10 words in this whole episode. That was so much you've given us. Final question would be, what for you is retirement like going to look like? I know that technically you could retire now, but I've you know heard the stories that once people retire, they die within 10 years. And like you have to just keep working and keep mm-hmm. yourself active, keep your brain exercised. Um, so what does retirement, if you have enough money, I think from what you said that you would not have to work again, you could live off the investments and everything. So what, how are you choosing to fill your day? And what is, what does that look like? Yeah. Number one, I will probably start playing golf again because my wife wants to start playing golf. Again. I haven't played for six years. That was part of the commitment and that change when as I was re-architecting my life. I loved it. It was the most important thing in my life for many years. But, you know, it's not as important as soccer practice last night or the games or the dance recitals or whatever that is. So for us, we've strategically invested into places from an SDR standpoint, from a real estate standpoint, that we want to spend time. So we don't see, you know, doing a, a world cruise at $80,000 a person. We're not going to, the ones that will fly private, you know, to do things like that. So we're Southwest people. And then if it's under three hours, I'm actually flying to San Diego on Southwest. That's a little bit of a stretch for me being six, seven. But so we, we know how we're going to travel. We fly to Montana on, on first class because we go to Denver and then it's another two and a half hour flight up. If I was 5'11", it would be a little bit different. So we have, we will split the majority of our time between Nashville, Montana, the Panhandle, the beach, Scottsdale, and our lake property. Those are four places, right? Those are the four places we absolutely love the most. So the plan for us, and that's why we're buying, we either have or buying multiple properties in those locations as to where the one that we're staying in is cash flowed by the other property or properties in that market while we are there. With that being said, the only thing that will really change for us is that we'll be able to be more free and probably more lonely without our kids, to be honest with you. So we'll probably chase our kids a little bit, you know, around college and that type of stuff. And we really thought our our oldest daughter was going to go to the University of Montana so she could be closer to, you know, there's two ski resorts within 15 minutes to where she could snowboard. And But she wants to be a doctor and she wants to stay here in Nashville. So that's another reason why we have to root here and stay here as well. Financially, business-wise, nothing will change. This is this this exact thing that I'm doing today will be the exact same thing that I'm doing most likely when I die. Whether it's now or, you know, 30 years from now. I've re-architected the life to create the business that I can be remote and do almost everything without having to be locked down to an office. The only thing that I think will change is hopefully you know, my goal is to build a 10,000 person conference, you know, hopefully we'll do 3000 this next February. And that's really the only big thing that I would say that would increase in responsibility, increase in time, but pretty much it'll be exactly what me and my wife do today, 
except for we'll start playing golf again and we'll travel more. That's it. Got it. Thank you so much, Bill. I seriously would love to have you on for a part two, maybe down the road. Talk about your luxury properties, your co-hosting. We didn't even touch on your whole hosting model of making that much revenue off of just a few properties. So there's so much more to talk about with you. And I know you're so great at marketing short-term rentals, but this to me is just you know, like you said, the life plan and all of this and planning this stuff down the road and decades down, I think is just more important and why we're all here. So thank you so much for sharing all of this with us. I appreciate you extracting that out of me because it's, it's more important than just investing into real estate. And I'll talk about it all day long. I'd love to come back. I really appreciate you having me here and I can't wait to, to see you in person and give you a big hug on Sunday yeah. night or Monday, whenever I see you. Yep. Yep. See you in a few days. Thank you, Val. We'll talk soon. See you guys. And finally, for this week's Am I the Airbnb Hole, I have to thank my friend Matt, also known on Instagram as at my broker Matt. You guys should go give him a follow if you are not already, but he posted the funniest reel this week, the production value, the music choice behind it, the narration chef's kiss 10 out of 10 as soon as i saw it i knew that this was going to be this week's am i the airbnb hole i commented that on his video i was dying this is so good so i am just going to play the audio for you let matt take it from here but i highly recommend that you guys go give him a follow watch this reel contribute to the view count give it a like he deserved it with this one and the fact that that him and his team had to go through this just please he earned the follow, all right? Without further ado, let's just play this audio, shall we? Oh, and also let me put in explicit uh, language content vulgarity warning before we play this, just if you have kids with you. A day in the life of an Airbnb host. Allow me to read. Good morning, do you approve of parties? Very secure. Absolutely not, take care. Bitch, fuck you. You don't have to be a rude fucking weirdo ass bitch. Racist ass bitch. You've been reported to Airbnb. I don't give a fuck. Eat a dick. Bum bitch, ugly bitch. I hate bitches like you. Have a wonderful day. Was that not the most poetic thing you ever heard? The most beautiful, heartwarming exchange? This just had me in my feels. You know, this is, this is why I wake up every day and do this. This is why. For these interactions right here. This is what fuels me. This is what fires me up. This is what feeds my soul. The inspirational music was just so perfect for this. Like every time, you know, my dentist or my neighbor or somebody asks me, what do you do for a living? And I'm like, I'm an Airbnb host. This is, this is the interaction that I wish I could convey to the person asking me. You know, they think that we just throw a house together and rake in the money and this is what I want them to see. This is the heart behind why I serve and why I do what I do. And this reel just captured it perfectly. So thank you, Matt, for putting this production together. Um, it really spoke to me and just reminded me why my heart is in this. Love you guys and have a good week, everybody. And with that, it is now checkout time. Thanks for listening and I'll see you back here next week. Lastly, as Airbnb hosts, we all can appreciate a good five-star review. So you already know a great review on this podcast would mean so much to me. Please subscribe, review, share, and connect with me in the show notes below. Bye.